Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Thank you that it um, opens difficult subjects and speaks to uh, even the deepest and most awkward and sometimes embarrassing things of life. Lord, we pray for us now as your people. Would you help us to understand what you are saying to us in your word? Would you, would you help us to apply uh, what you are saying to us in your word and to our hearts? Would you help us to apply those things in our lives, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our relationships? Um, in our life as a family here as a church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we open your words now, would you teach us? Um, would your Holy Spirit um, lead us and give us strength to follow, Lord, and apply what you have for us? And would your glory be our highest concern in everything um, in all of our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, another fun one this week. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 6. And um, you can go back, that might be a useful kind of um, first thing for you to, uh, to listen to if you, if you missed that a couple of weeks ago. But what we were doing then is really looking at kind of sexuality and sexual morality more generally. And what Paul got us to do through the end of chapter 6 is to look back at the Lord Jesus, to look at, at who he is, that he's the king over everything, and to look at what he's done, that he had died for us to purchase our bodies, that he's taken sinners like us, do you remember we looked at the story of Hosea in the Old Testament of, um, of a wife who had, had left her husband um, and gone away with all sorts of different men and ended up getting herself sold, sold into slavery, sexual slavery. But Hosea, God's prophet, had gone. And, and in a picture of what God does for us, he'd gone and rescued her out of that. He'd bought her, though she was probably somebody nobody wanted anymore. I mean, let alone a husband who'd been betrayed. But he went and paid a high price and bought her back. That's a picture of what God has done for us. That at the cross, the Lord Jesus went and gave his own body so that he would wash us and buy us and bring us back from our slavery to sin, from our slavery to our temptations and desires and all these things that drag us away, um, away from him and away from each other. So last week we looked at the kind of the gospel lenses we put on were the, the lenses of the cross, of God doing that, of giving his only son to buy us back and give us freedom to own our bodies, um, freedom to use our bodies for his glory, for his good, and for the, for the building up of others rather than for the using of other people. So last week we looked at the cross and looked back and said this, that sex is something that isn't cheap and a small thing. Sex is something important. Sex is radical self-donation. It's where you give yourself completely in a relationship where you are fully and permanently and exclusively committed to that other person. That sex is something really serious and deep and wonderful and powerful. And that the, the right place for it is, is, is in that relationship of marriage where you're fully and permanently, exclusively committed to somebody else because sex is radical self-donation. It's not just like eating a sandwich, like the you know, fulfilling of an appetite. No, it's something that, um, that requires deep parts of, of our of our person, of who we are, giving those to somebody else. It requires deep vulnerability, doesn't it? And so if you get it wrong, you use it out of that context 
then it hurts you and it damages. But God has come and he's brought us out of all of that damage, washed it all away and restored us to be his pure people, to be his bride. So whatever failures we've had in sexual sin um, in the past, and every single one of us, we said that last week, is a sexual sinner, whether you've been married for a long time or single all your life, um, whether you're a virgin or not, all of us are sexual sinners in our minds and our bodies, and we need the Lord Jesus to come and wash us and restore us. So last week we looked back, kind of more generally, at sexual sin and at what Christ has done to buy us and rescue us. Now we're going to look forward. I wonder if you spotted that that is what Paul is doing here. We kind of started off with lots of his application, and if you go through the chapters, I hope you might do this afternoon, or um, if you get a little bit of time, you'll find there's loads of really, really practical sections. There was the bit we read at the beginning for married couples. You'll find if you carry on reading that he talks about widows and those who are single, that he talks to those who are married, but to non-Christians, to married to non-Christians who want to stay married, and also there's people who are married to non-Christians who don't want to be married to you anymore, who, who want to go away. Um, he talks to those who are divorced or to those who are thinking about getting divorced. He talks to, to us about the positions that we're in. You'll find in the, in the middle, we'll talk about this in a second, to whatever position you're in. And he says, stay in that position because there's something coming if you look to the future. Then he talks to people who are engaged or betrothed. It's not quite like our engagement, but people who are kind of given in marriage to somebody or kind of promised in marriage. And he says, it's okay to carry on and go through with that and get married. But actually, it's better to stay single. So he talks, you see, it's a really passage really full of application, full of talking to you and to you and to you and whatever your situation. So take it home and study it. There's a couple of tricky things you might want to... Um, let me just give you a couple of sentences on them to help you as you read it. One tricky thing is, is this in verse 10 and, and 12. To the married, I give this command, and in brackets, not I, but the Lord. And then two verses later, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. It sounds as if Paul is giving you what Jesus says and then saying, but this is just my opinion in the next bit. Um, that's not really what he's saying. He's not saying you have to follow what Jesus says, but you can take it or leave it when I say something to you. Have a look at the end of the chapter. In my judgment, um, single people are happier if they stay single. But, uh, sorry, and he says, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. Or later on, if you look to chapter 15, Paul says and equates what he's saying with what God is saying to you. So what's he saying in those bracketed sections? Not I, but the Lord, not the Lord, but I. What he's saying is, Jesus spoke explicitly about this. Not I, but the Lord. He told us and taught really clear things about marriage and divorce. But he hasn't, in any of the Gospels, taught us about if you're married to a non-Christian. Jesus didn't explicitly mention that situation. So Paul is giving you his view on that, his teaching on that as, a, as an apostle. It's always worth remembering, 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were written one of the earliest letters, one of the earliest pieces of the New Testament. And Paul's writing this when the stories about Jesus were going around in the church, but hadn't been written down fully in the Gospels yet. So he's telling you what Jesus said, and then he's telling you what he as an apostle, as somebody who Jesus chose to, to pass on the message, to apply the Gospel to the world and to the church. He's telling you what he's saying. So that's one little um, tricky thing. The other thing is, is in the section... Um, when it comes to talk about if you're married to somebody who's not a Christian. And it talks about that you, as a Christian, make that person holy. Now, that's what he's not saying in that. And maybe this is a bit strange. But if that's your situation, you can go home and study it later. What he's not saying is that if you're a Christian, then the other person is saved and they become a Christian as well. Because a couple of verses he says, who knows? 
what will happen if, if you'll save the person you're married to or not, as in if, if they'll become a Christian or not. What he means when he says they're set apart or they're sanctified or they're made holy is that they have an amazing opportunity, that they're, kind of, they're, they're closer to the body of Christ, closer to God's family, closer to Jesus than almost anybody else, any other person who's not a Christian, because they get to live with a Christian day by day. They get to see what it's like for you to walk with Jesus and to follow him day by day. And what an awesome position that is. He's using Old Testament language for, for kind of people who are made holy, who are set apart, who have a special role to play, who God has brought close. And there were plenty of people like that in the people of Israel who were holy, who were sanctified, but who turned away from God. So they had a special privilege. They were close. They had lots of opportunities, but they turned away from God in the end. And that's what it's saying. If you're married to a non-Christian, doesn't mean in some weird kind of magical way that you being a Christian makes them a Christian or you make it, being a Christian makes your children Christians and that they're saved. What he's saying is they have the special privilege. Okay, so those are a couple of, th- couple of things I just wanted to get out of the way so that you can take it home and read it without thinking, what on earth is he talking about here? So take it home. Find your situation. Are you single? Are you married? Married to a Christian, to a non-Christian? Are you divorced? I don't know. Whatever your situation is, you can take this home and Paul will have something to say to you. But there's something far more important than or that, something that we need to get through and, and work through first before we get to all that application. So that's what I want to do now. You can take it home and read it through and kind of wrestle with it. I can give you some books um, to, to help think through specific questions you might have. But what's the big idea Paul's got here? The big idea is, chapter 6, we look back at the cross. Chapter 7, we're looking forward to Jesus coming back and how that then affects all of our relationships, whether we're single or married in particular. So this is the sermon today. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. There's a bigger reality that we need to live for. Jesus is is the king of everything. He proved that by dying and then rising to life. He proved that he was powerful over the most powerful powerful thing there is in the world, which is death. None of us can escape that. None of us can defeat it. We can delay it. We got pretty good at that in our modern medical culture. But no, Jesus has gone through death and out the other side and now lives as king over everything. So when he speaks, he speaks as your king, whether you recognize that or not. So what he says about marriage, about singleness, about everything else in life that he speaks about is binding for us. Jesus is king, so we should listen to him. And remember, Jesus is the king who died for you. So when he says something, maybe especially when he says something that's difficult to hear, something that stings, something that just doesn't quite sit right, that I'm not sure about, we need to remember that not just that he's the king and so we should listen to him, but that he's a good king who loves us and died for us, who did what Hosea did for his wife who betrayed him, who has bought us at huge cost to himself to bring us to himself. He's the one who's done radical self-donation. He's the one who's committed himself to you fully. He's given his own one and only son. He's committed himself to you exclusively. He loves you and wants you for himself. He's committed to you permanently. And so Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That's what he says here, isn't it? He's coming back. The time is short. That's what he's talking about in those verses that Liz read for us. Um, Jesus is coming back soon. The form of this present world is passing away. That's what he says in verse 31. The time is short. What he's saying is there's a future that we're closer to now than we have ever been, and what we need to do is orientate our souls around that future. What is that future like? Well, Isaiah 62 
talks about that future as a marriage. There's plenty of things that you could say about what it'll be like when Jesus returns, but Isaiah 62 says this, you will be, God speaking to his people, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her. Isn't that a great name? My delight is in her. That's what God will name us. You will be called married, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. That's Isaiah speaking 500 years or so before um, what we read here. Looking into the future and saying the future of the church, the future of God's people, the future of the world is a marriage. Is God putting everything right, cleaning everything up so that his people wear white and meet him. And he is as excited about seeing us and being with you forever as a a bridegroom is on his wedding day. As much as he's looking forward to the, the moment when the music starts up and the congregation goes quiet and stands and the door opens at the back and everybody turns around to look at her and her beauty. And you can see, have you ever looked, not just at the bride, but at, the, at the, the bridegroom? As he's looking at her, can't wait for her. Well, that's God for you. God looks forward to being with us forever, to finishing his work and putting the world right, as much as a husband looks forward to seeing his bride on that great wedding day. That was Isaiah looking forward, and then this is what it looks like in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, those are pictures of God's people, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the picture of the future. That's what Isaiah looked forward to. That's what you and I need to orientate our hearts towards. We've got to realize there's a future that we're closer to now than we ever have been. And that is the thing that we should be orbiting around, that we should be looking forward to, that we should be making decisions kind of by looking through that lens. Jesus is coming back soon to take us with him to be his bride, to finish the work that he's begun in us already and to make the world wonderful, to make it a new heaven, a new earth, to live with us, to wipe our tears, for there to be no more suffering or sadness or pain and for us to be with him at a wedding party forever. That's God's picture of the future. That's Jesus' picture of the future. So I guess, I guess the first question before we get into marriage and singleness and all that is do you want in on that? Do you realize that that is how good the good news of Christianity is? That heaven is a party. That heaven is being with Jesus more fully human than you've ever been and ever felt before. That he makes you who you're meant to be. In Isaiah, that same chapter, Isaiah 62, it says he gives you a new name, makes you, knows you, and brings you to himself. Do you want to be part of that? Well, well, don't just go home and try and work harder and be better and, and live according to all God's rules. No, the way that, you're, the way that you become part of God's bride is to, is to bring all of your dirt, all of our mess, all of our hidden shadows and deep inner failures, to bring them to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. There's nothing I could do to earn my place 
as your bride, as one of your people. Would you do it all for me? Would you make Jesus' cross count for me so I can be a part of that? Would you make it so I look forward to that final day and don't dread it? That I look forward to meeting Jesus as a, a bride looks forward to walking down the aisle, as a husband looks forward to catching that first glimpse? Would you help me to look forward to meeting Jesus and then to orientate my life around him? So that's where you need to stop today, by the way, if you're not a Christian, is to realize that that's really good news, that Jesus loves you and he wants you. And he has done everything to make that possible so that you come to him today and say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for walking away from you. Would you take me and make me yours? That's where you need to stop and pray and come to know him today. But if you know him, if you are looking forward to that day, well then, okay, how does that apply? Well, there's so many ways you could apply it, aren't there? And Paul is going to help us apply it to marriage and to singleness. So let's do a few highlights from there and then... Uh, We'll sing again and pray and go and live this out. Let's orientate our lives around the future. So Paul's saying there's more to life than romance, more to family than business, sorry, more to life than family, more to life than than your business and your work, more to life than just trying to have security because the time is short. So if you're married, if you're single, if you're living here or living there, if this is your job, whatever it is, Paul's message to us in this chapter is this. Devote yourself to God by committing to his call on your life. Devote yourself to God by committing yourself to his call on your life. That's what he says several times over and over through and through this and through this chapter. So what does that mean for marriage? What does that mean for singleness? What does that mean for whatever situation I find myself? Well, Paul says, don't be quick to jump out of that situation. If you're married, commit. I mean, you've already committed. But if you're married, commit. Go all in. Don't leave that commitment lightly because you have wonderful opportunities as a married person and this struggles too. But if that's the situation you find yourself in if you're married, then commit to it because that's what God has called to you. That's his gift in, you, in your life at the moment. And are you single? If that's you, whether you're a widow or somebody who's divorced, well then commit. Go all in. Don't, realize, don't think of that as a situation of loss necessarily, of kind of that you're less than somebody else. We'll get into that in a moment. But realize that like married people, you have wonderful opportunities. One, I mean, big struggles as well, but wonderful opportunities. And so don't change that situation lightly either if you're single. Thinking about married, uh, thinking about marriage or whatever situation you find yourself in, devote yourself to God by committing yourself to his call on your life. Let's think about marriage to begin with. What is marriage? Paul says, marriage is a signpost that beckons you to realize what Christ has for you, for all of humanity, for his people. That's what marriage is. We've talked about that um, through the sermon so far. Marriage is a picture of ultimate reality. Marriage is a signpost. It's not the ultimate thing. It's not the mountaintop of human experience. No, the mountaintop, the thing we're all looking forward to is to being with Jesus. And marriage is a picture of that. Marriage is you fully, exclusively, committing yourself to somebody else. And, and so as you do that, being a picture of Jesus. So how does the fact that Jesus is coming back apply to marriage? Well, it's, it's this. It's being all in. If you're a signpost, then be a signpost. If, you, if God has made you one flesh with somebody else, that was back in chapter 6 or back in Genesis or in Jesus' teaching about marriage, that's what marriage is, that you're one flesh with one another. So be one flesh. It's basically what he's saying in that beginning part of chapter 7. 
the Corinthians were saying, if you were married, don't bother touching each other. In fact, marriage is a kind of uh, icky, not really great thing to be a part of anyway. You know, the pagans are the ones who are all having all the sex, so that's not really something appropriate for Christians to be doing. Um, And anyway, our bodies aren't very important. This is what the Corinthians were saying. Uh, You know, God is just going to whisk our souls away and leave our bodies here, so it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. In fact, the more you enjoy pleasure and stuff, actually, that's probably going to mark or taint your soul somehow. So, So leave it out. Don't bother having sex. If you're married, just kind of abstain, and I suppose you should probably stay together for the kids or something, but, but don't really commit to it. That's the kind of thing the Corinthians were saying. That's their attitude in the beginning, where they say, Paul quotes them, it's good for a man not even to marry, or it's good for a man not to touch a woman, or not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's their attitude. Paul says to them, no, be who you are. You've committed to each other. So go all in. You're one flesh. So go and be one flesh. Go and give yourselves to one another. It's quite a revolutionary way that he puts this as well. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And listen to this. The wife's body doesn't belong to her, her, herself alone, but also to her husband. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. It's maybe something a bit controversial in our own culture to say that. But Paul immediately says something far more controversial in the Corinthian culture. He turns it around and says, In the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to himself, but also to his wife. So Paul is setting off what some people have called the original sexual revolution. You might remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that in Corinth, in this culture, men could do whatever they want, visited prostitutes, um, slept with their slaves, did whatever, but wives were not allowed to. They were just for having children. Men could do what they wanted, wives, sorry, no. Paul says, no, in Christian marriage, you are equal. In Christian marriage, a wife's body belongs to her husband because you've given yourself completely fully to him. But also, husbands, your body belongs to your wife. So don't you go and do whatever you want sexually. No, you belong to her. That's, by the way, is not an excuse for us to demand things from each other. It's a, it's a wonderfully freeing way to be, to give to each other rather than to take. That's a revolutionary thing that Paul says about sex and marriage. Another thing that he talks about is consent. Did you see that? The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to the husband. And um, the husband's body doesn't belong to himself, but to her. So don't deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time. You see, it's not just that the husband should get his way whenever he wants, but that you should talk about these things. That kind of presupposes communication, doesn't it? That if you're one with one another then you'll be one in all sorts of ways. You'll be talking to each other and open about things and talking about your desires and giving to one another and helping each other out in the bedroom and in every area of life. Don't deprive each other except by mutual consent. So did you realize that consent, our culture talks a lot about that when it comes to sex, is a Christian idea. Wives didn't bother asking for consent. Husbands could just do whatever they wanted. No, Paul then, in Corinthian culture, but Paul writes to them and says, no, talk with each other. You need to consent. If you're going to stop and pray and give yourself something and so you need to stop having sex, okay, do it for a time, but make sure you agree. If you're going to start and carry on and and change things up in your relationship, well, talk and communicate with each other and, and consent. So our culture talks about that as the kind of way that we should work out our sexual morality. One thing to note, like I said, is that that's a Christian idea. It was something that, that revolutionized the world in Paul's day. Um, but it's not the only thing that we need. 
just a little caution for us as we go into our culture and people talk about consent is the thing. Basically, two rules in our culture when it comes to sex. Make sure that the other person's consenting. Make sure that they're not a child. It's basically all the rules that we have or that people say. Paul says in all this teaching around here that consent is really important, but there's an even deeper question than does this person agree to do what we want to do? The deeper question is, is this going to be good for them? Is this going to help them and build them up and encourage them and make them more fully human than they were before? That's our question. Not just do they agree with it, do they consent, but is this really what's best for them, even if they do consent? See, so as Christians, we have something to say. We can say consent is our idea. Equal men and women um, in marriage, that was our idea. But it goes even deeper than that deeper than consent, to what's best, what's good for, the, for this other person. Is what we're going to do going to build them up and help them? And Jesus says that unless sex is inside that covenant commitment of marriage, unless you've given yourself completely exclusively forever to that person, then it's going to damage you. It's not going to be good. So even if they agree, don't do it. Even if it was their idea, don't do it. Unless it's going to be something that binds you together inside that covenant of marriage. Sex is something really good. It's a God-given desire, a powerful force for life, for radical self-donation, like I said. So if you're married, Paul is talking to us and saying this, if you're married, have more sex. Maybe you didn't expect to hear that in church today. Um, but it goes deeper than that. It's not just about bedroom oneness. It's about all-life oneness, I think, anyway. Um, it has a wider application to all of our relationships. So we could ask this question. Are you really one with the person that you're married to? Or are you just living in parallel? You just happen to live in the same house and kind of pass like ships in the night. Or are you really one? The bedroom will give you a good uh, kind of thermometer to check that. Are you really giving yourself an, uh, one in heart and soul and mind and body? It's a good thermometer of where you are in your relationship. But it's also a good fireplace to warm up that relationship. So ask yourselves if you're married. Ask, sit down with your spouse and say, how are we doing? Are we just living parallel lives? I, an example of that, do we, do we have separate bank accounts? You know, where she has her money and I have mine, where we haven't really said what's yours is mine and mine is yours, where we don't really share everything, but we kind of have parallel lives. I do what I want, she does what she wants. Or are we really one in all of our lives and everything that we do? Well, if you're struggling in that way, if you feel like, no, we haven't, really been one together. We're not really pulling in the same direction. We're sort of living in parallel. Well, it's time to sit down and talk, isn't it? Together, maybe if you're feeling cautious or protective or closed, you just don't feel safe with one another, it's time to talk through that. It's time to say, no, the Lord has called us to marriage. That's his gift to us. We've made those promises. God has made us one with each other. So let's live like that. Let's commit to that. If you're single, and that's not you at the moment, you're feeling like this isn't quite relevant to you, well, what's your application for this chat about marriage is to support and encourage those who are married, to go and, and pray for them, to go and spend time asking that the Lord would protect marriages in the church, that those who are married would be one together, because that's something that's wonderfully good, not just for, the, for that pair, but for the whole community of the church, because deeper marriages can be like spreading trees. Uh, marriages where people are really one and, and kind of full of life together, end up like spreading trees that bear a lot of fruit, that people can come and kind of rest in those branches, can come and, and shelter in your house, can come after a really hard work, uh, week, week at work um, and come and enjoy um, food, enjoy fellowship, enjoy community. So let's pray for those uh, who are married 
and let's encourage them to devote themselves together um, to the Lord. How does Christ's return help us with all of that? Well, one, it says this is what the picture is. We're looking forward to that, so let's be that and be a good and clear signposts for others so that as they look at our marriages, as they come and, and spend time with us as married couples, that people see Christ in us, see how Jesus loves the church as husbands love their wives, see how the church loves Jesus as wives love their husbands. So we can be good signposts and help people to see more clearly what the future has in store. And also, um, we can give ourselves completely to one another. Because if Jesus is coming back, if Jesus is coming back to put all things right, then I can risk making myself vulnerable. I can risk giving myself to this person completely. Because even if they end up disappointing me or betraying me or taking from me, well, Jesus is going to put it all right in the end anyway. Jesus is going to bring justice. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. So I'm safe with him. I'm completely secure with him. So I don't have to spend my life hoarding you know, my own money for myself just in case that person leaves me. I don't have to spend my time kind of emotionally walling myself in just in case that person betrays me. Because no, Jesus will fix everything, will give you all things that we need. We'll, we'll restore all things so we can risk. Does that make sense? We can be a good signpost and point people to him. And we can also give ourselves completely to one another, even if that's a big risk. We can be vulnerable because he guarantees everything. So within a Christian vision of marriage, what is it all about? It's about you looking at that person and saying, I want to make you somebody who's fit to see Jesus on that day. I see what he's beginning in you, and I want to be a part of that. And then to go out to the world and say, come and look at how Christ loves his church. Let us lead you to Jesus. And then to say to each other, I'm committed to you, whatever the cost, until death parts us. But, but marriage is difficult, isn't it? We've talked about some of the benefits, some of the good things, some of the uh, wonderful opportunities there are of being one together. But there's difficulties too. Verse 28, Paul says, if you do marry, you haven't sinned. But those who marry will face many trouble in, troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. I'm sure all of us who are married or are formerly married can give you examples of troubles and difficulties in married life. So it's not easy. So we need to support one another. Um, there's plenty of trouble and pain and difficulties in Christian marriages, let alone if you're married to a non-Christian spouse and the extra tensions and struggles that there are there. But marriage is a gift. Marriage is something given to you. If you're married, well, that is God's gift to you. So press into it. Go all in if you can. Trust him that he'll restore everything if you've been broken. Um, but commit to marriage and commit to the other marriages in the church. Help one another out and pray for one another. Marriage is a great gift, but it's not everything. Like I said earlier, it's not the mountaintop experience. And Paul proves that by what he says next. Paul says something even more radical, even more revolutionary in that culture, and I think in ours as well. Paul says in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried. Or verse 27, are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. Or in verse 38 to 40, so then he who marries um, the virgin, the unmarried woman that you're engaged to, he does what is good. But he who doesn't marry does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying marriage is wonderful and good and a gift from God that leads people to see the gospel more clearly. 
in good and healthy marriages. But it's not everything. It's not everything. In fact, singleness is even better. Paul says singleness will give you even more opportunities. Singleness is something that, um, that opens up life. Singleness is something that will lead to you avoiding the pitfalls and struggles of marriage and give you great opportunities to serve the Lord. It's not usually what we think in our own culture, isn't it? We often think of, of singleness through the lens of, of loss, through the, oh, you're kind of not quite a full person if you're single, or you've kind of lost something, or you've not quite experienced all that life has to offer. That's usually how we think about singleness, and if, especially if you're celibate, if you're keeping yourself sexually pure, and um, uh, as Jesus calls us to, we can often think that that makes you less of a person, especially in our culture, that if you aren't kind of living out your sexual identity, if you aren't experiencing um, sex and all that comes with it, then you're kind of less of a person. You're not really a fully formed adult. Maybe people don't say that out loud, but it's kind of the implication, isn't it? If you're single, if you're celibate, you're not really, I don't know, you're not really all there. Maybe you're even slightly dangerous because you're repressing your sexuality. And that is something that leads to all sorts of crazy, difficult things, according to Sigmund Freud and others. But no, Paul says, no, actually, think positively about singleness. Singleness is preferable. Singleness is a gift. Each one has their own gift. Some are married. And we know that that's wonderful, and we talk about that, and even idolize that as a church. But Paul says singleness is a gift. And actually, if you have the choice, I reckon you should choose singleness. That's what Paul says. That was explosively radical. Explosively radical. If what he said about marriage and sex and the equality between man and woman was something radical, what he says about singleness is even more. Because in the days that the Corinthians were living, where was your life insurance? It was your children. Where was your uh, care for when you were elderly? It was your children. Where was your name and legacy in society? It was your children. You see, so if you say, if Paul writes to these people and says, actually, it's okay not to be married. It's okay not to have children. It's okay not to have a family. He's saying you don't need life insurance. You don't need somebody to look after you in your old age, or your children anyway. It doesn't have to be them. And, and you don't need a legacy in this world. You don't need to make a name for yourself and leave your mark on this world. Why? Well, you can put the dots together, can't you? Why? Because the time is short, because Jesus is coming back. And the reality that he is bringing with him is deeper than any reality that we know. So, so your life insurance that you have in your children, well, no. Jesus, death and resurrection is your real life insurance. What about your your um, help to look after you in your old age. Well, God has given you the church for this life and he'll protect your life and give you a new body in the next. So you can say no to having a family. What about your legacy and your name and your mark on the world? Well, Jesus has his glory and he's called you to live for that and let that be your mark on the people around you. You see, Jesus is saying it's possible to be single. That The things that we miss, the things that we feel make us less of a person, are actually things that Jesus restores to us and gives to us in their full, full form. So if you're single and you're missing out on marriage, you're missing out on a signpost. If you're single, it's a gift. Now, don't hear me wrongly. You might be single because you've been bereaved, widowed. You might be single because you've been betrayed or abandoned. You might be single because you've just been frustrated in love all the way through life and it's just never quite worked out and you've never been married in the first place. What Paul is not saying is that those things are gifts, that, that kind of heartbreak is a gift. He's not saying that. 
or that bereavement is, is a gift. No, he's not saying that. Or that abandonment and betrayal is a gift. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the singleness that comes from that is something that we shouldn't just dismiss, something that we shouldn't just try and escape as if marriage was the answer to everything. Now he's saying, look at singleness and recognize it's something that's a wonderful opportunity, an opportunity for you to be devoted to God in an undivided way. Because married people, they're always multitasking. That's what he says. He says they have kids, that a husband looks after his wife and has to think of her kids and the children, as well as his work, as well as his service for the Lord. And, and so he's kind of multitasking all the time. And the wife is the same. She's thinking about how to please her husband and help him and encourage him and thinking about her work and children. And, and they're multitasking all the time. And maybe you feel that if you're a married person. Multitasking spiritually as well. But Paul says if you're single, you'll have more time, you'll have more, more energy, you will be able to devote yourself to God in a way that married people really struggle to. It's a kind of obvious thing, isn't it? Maybe something we don't talk about very often, but, um, but for me, when half-term comes and Bethan took, a couple of weeks ago, took the kids away to see the grandparents, I felt incredible freedom. Freedom to study, freedom to kind of visit people at all sort of random times of the day. If you go to get a call to go to the hospital and visit someone at 6 p.m. in the evening, well, it's not awkward because then I can just eat at eight rather than you know, have dinner on the table and miss bath time. And, and so it's not that you don't love your children and love your wife and much prefer kind of spending time with her than studying Hebrew, but, um, but it does give you more time to be single and to serve others. In other ways, it gives you less because as a, as a single person, you'll know you, know you don't get that time when you come in from work and your spouse is just there and you get that time before bed to just chat and catch up and, and kind of connect and deepen your relationship. You have to work harder for it. It costs you money maybe to go out for a drink with somebody or to, it costs you time to go out and it, it disrupts your schedule. So single life can be difficult. It's not all just more time and more money. But in terms of an undivided heart, in terms of being able to give yourself completely to the work of the Lord, to drop everything and go and put your arm around someone who's suffering, to be able to, to stay up late and study, to get up early and go and serve, to, in terms of the freedom that singleness gives you, Paul says, actually, I'd prefer to stay like that. Marriage is wonderful, but Jesus is coming back soon. There's lots of work to be done. So let's, let's really consider, if you're single, going all in on being single, and recognizing the gifts and opportunities, and also getting help with those struggles. You see a little sentence that sums this up. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness, singleness shows us its sufficiency. The gospel is enough for us. Marriage gives you the picture and gives you a signpost towards it. Singleness and saying, I don't need to be married. I don't need to have an insurance policy of children. I don't need to have sex and, and kind of pour myself out in that way. I don't need to do all these things that married people do. That shows you that Jesus is enough, that the gospel is enough, that it is possible to be content and to be single. But there are struggles, aren't there? There are struggles with sexual temptation. All of us feel that. We've talked about that a lot. So how do we deal with that? some practical things, whether you're a single person who's never been married, somebody perhaps who's been widowed, or somebody whose spouse is ill or pregnant, and you just can't kind of get relief from sexual desires, well, how do we deal with those kind of things? Well, I think you first need to talk to people and talk to God, support those frustrations and struggles and battles out to him, like the psalmists do in places they talk about really difficult and in intimate and, and hard things. So pour those desires and frustrations out to God them out to others as well. Go and find good friends who you can be honest about and share things with and, and talk about how difficult it is. 
Maybe go and find an older friend who's been through bereavement, who's been through difficult times, and ask them to help you out. Another thing you could do is guard your eyes. Um, This is something that Job says that he does. He made a covenant with his eyes not to look at a girl lustfully. It doesn't mean you should never have eye contact with a person or never notice beauty. It means dwelling on that beauty. I once heard somebody give an illustration of um, kind of fighting lust, fighting sexual temptation as, as, uh, as if you're fighting a sumo wrestler and you're always going to lose, apart from that you control the diet of the sumo wrestler. So if the sumo is huge, you're always going to lose that fight, aren't you? It's really hard to battle and fight against sexual temptation. But if you control the diet of the sumo wrestler and you can starve them, we shouldn't do this in real life, but just in, you know, in the picture, if you can starve them and make them skinny, eventually you can you can actually beat them. And what you see, what you take in, what you look at with your eyes is how you feed that sumo wrestler of lust in your life. So, so let's watch out for what we're watching on television. Let's look out for unhelpful, I don't know, just things that, you know, make it difficult for you to handle sexual temptation. Let's bounce our eyes away from those things and not feed that sumo wrestler within. And that's one little practical way that we could do that. But the biggest thing is to talk to God about it to remember who we are in Christ, that even if you were to switch on your computer, go to that website and do what you do, even if you were to do that, God would love you immediately afterwards just as much as he loves you right now, that he gave his only son to die for you, that whatever you do, even that, he would love you just as much as if you hadn't done it at all. When I think about that, when I have come to realize that, it sucks away temptation I mean, it comes back later, and it's a, it's a difficult battle that we do keep having to fight. But to know that God loves me that much, to go and read Romans 5 and 6, to go and read what Stefan read to us in Galatians 2 last Sunday morning, to recognize how much God loves us is something that, that takes away the kind of fun of temptation. So go pray, go talk to others. Um, don't feed that sumo wrestler, and uh, let's help each other as we fight with that. But what about loneliness? So sexual temptation, the other struggle of singleness is loneliness, isn't it? How do we deal with that? Well, often our culture will say, you just need to go and sleep with somebody. You just need to kind of go and have a close relationship um, and, and deal with it in that way. Well, our culture collapses sex and intimacy. So as the church, we should try and push those two things apart and say, as is true, it's possible to know intimacy. It's possible to be really close with somebody and not have a sexual relationship with them. So an example from the Bible would be David and Jonathan back in the Old Testament, where when Jonathan dies, David mourns for him for the loss of that deep friendship and says, the love that we had was better than the love of women, the love that I had with my wife. It was deeper, that friendship that he shared, the kind of um, one heart that he had with that close friend was so intimate and so close that he mourned that more than he mourned losing the love of his wife. And David wasn't particularly good with women, but I think there's there's a picture there. There's something we should remember as Christians, as God's church, that we need to be cultivating good friendships. And we need to be looking after one another. We need to be a family. So let's do that. If you're married, don't just turn in on each other and kind of use it as a just the two of you with everybody else excluded. No, be a spreading tree. Let's be a family of, of God's people so that we take in those who are struggling and lonely, so that we take in younger married couples and look after old widowers. Let's be a family who looks after each other. So look around you in the blocks that you're sitting in, in the rows that you are. Who's lonely? Who might be struggling? Who might be going through difficult times? The answer is everybody. So who might you have over to your house? Who might you have to eat with you? How can we grow as a family of believers who help it be possible for single people to 
and to live as single people, but to be part of a family. For single people to live without children of their own, but to have plenty of children and little ones to enjoy and look after and give presents to and, and to kind of be their little nephews and nieces and brothers and sisters. How can we be a family that looks after one another so we don't even need to knock or we don't even need to make an appointment to just turn up at each other's houses and be welcomed and know that we're home? That's the kind of thing that helps us, to know that Jesus is coming back and this, this life isn't forever, that he'll put everything back together, that Jesus will come and take us. So if you're missing out on marriage now, you'll enjoy what it's pointing to fully and completely without any loss in the future. If you're single, you have a family, you have friends. So let's pray now. Let's keep on praying for each other and let's keep on committing um, one another to the Lord, remembering that Jesus is coming back and that we should orientate our lives around that truth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which is open and honest, which talks about all sorts of different things. Lord, I want to pray for brothers and sisters here this morning who are struggling in different ways, who are married and, Lord, feel, feel the troubles of that, who want to be one with their husband or their wife, but just find so many roadblocks and, and bumps and wrinkles and difficulties, so much history, Lord, that needs to be worked through. Father, I want to pray for married couples here who are struggling in that way. Lord, would you um, give them peace in their hearts? Would you help them to know that the difficulties of life, um, being married at the moment, aren't going to last forever? Lord, that one day you'll put us back together. One day you'll welcome us into your presence and we'll be married to you, Lord, forever. Lord, we pray for those who are single this morning and struggling with that, Lord, who feel that deep loneliness. Uh, Father, who feel the um, the sting and the pain and the shame of sexual temptation and, um, and just ache in difficulty in that way. Lord, we pray for single folk here, and for those who are younger, for those who are um, older. Lord, we pray that you would help them. Pray that you would help us as a church family to help, to be really good and close friends, to be intimate, and to know and look after one another. Lord, you promise us that whoever gives up um, their life will get it back, that whoever gives up family and, um, and wealth and all these different things for you will receive those things back a hundredfold in this life and the next. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you coming good on your promises. It would help us to know that we have a family here and to love one another in that way. Help us to support and encourage and help us to be people who look to the future, who see Jesus coming back and who live all of life in the light of his soon return. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.